I'm Christina Keefe Perry. And I'm Khaled Keefe Perry. This is On Carrying a Concern. Stories of Friends in Service. We want to remind you that these podcasts are long and that they are broken up with musical interludes thematically so that if you're using them in community or just for your personal listening, you know that you can stop at a, after a musical interlude and take a break. So the format is there was some interview with a guest and then Christina and I reflect a little bit on it and that can be considered as like a chunk. And then the next thing will be another piece of interview and then another reflection chunk. So all of the transcripts and questions for reflection can be found on the website ocacshow.org and they might be useful for you as you're listening or if you want to have a small group conversation about that. If you're listening out there and finding the the show useful, we would love to hear about it and how it's useful. How are you using it? Why does it matter to you or why does it matter to your small group? Or if you've found something challenging or problematic, we'd like to hear about that too. And again, this can be whenever. It's 2018, May now. But if this is uh, two years later or three years or 10 years later and you're hearing it for the first time, hopefully the website will still be up, ocacshow.org. Drop us a line or find me and Christina somewhere and, and let us know how it has how it has been useful or challenging or problematic for you. We want to stay in conversation about that. And the feedback that you provide us, um, if it's timely, helps us figure out kind of what we can address on the show. And presumably hearing from you, even if it is five years out, will matter to us um, in terms of knowing how the work is being received. Yeah. Yeah. Please be in touch. This week... We get to have a conversation with Angela Hopkins, formerly of New England and currently a member of Ithaca Monthly Meeting in New York Yearly Meeting. Khaled should get some recognition for driving to Ithaca in a blizzard to conduct this interview. It was fun and snowy. We'll hear Angela really lift up her story of coming to friends that is different from any of the other kinds of stories that we've heard and I think informs her experience of really following life and leadings. Yeah, absolutely. Well, enjoy it, folks. This is a, uh, another good one. Yeah, thanks for listening. My name is Angela Hopkins, uh, and we're at the Friends Center for Racial Justice in Ithaca. My meeting, I became a friend in Kenya in Zoya monthly meeting, El Ghani's yearly meeting, and traveled with a, a minute and um, have been a released friend uh, doing the work of racial justice and working on racism within the Religious Society of Friends. And um, about a year and a half ago, I, after doing uh, some, some work with Ithaca monthly meeting, was um, offered the opportunity to um, create the Friends Center for Racial Justice here at the Bird House, which is a property that um, that the meeting had that was donated to to the meeting. So um, after much work and um, lots of threshing sessions, um, the the meeting felt led to to release this property uh, for the creation of the Friends Center. Mm. And so that's 
that's what I do. So, so that's interesting. So for you, that word releasing or released doesn't have a financial meaning to it. No. Um, I'm from Dayton, Ohio. Okay. And, um, and before going to Kenya, I really had no idea that friends still, um, exi- I, I knew about friends from, uh, studying them. I had gone to seminary and, and had read, uh, about Quakers, but did not know. Um, that year there was a triennial and they said there were more Quakers in Kenya than anywhere else in the world. And I was raised missionary Baptist and I said, you know, how did that come to be? And I was curious at first. And so I, I went to Kenya um, at the triennial and I met a, a, a very sweet woman, uh, Priscilla Makino, and she pastored a meeting, um, uh, the Zoya monthly meeting. And she did a lot of work with women um, throughout Kenya. And uh, she invited me to her home after the triennial and and to just travel with her. And um, I just traveled with her as she went and met with women mm. in different spots of Kenya. And, and they um, listened and shared with one another about what was happening in their re- regions. These were other pastors and meetings. And um, I really, at, after a certain period of time, I really felt like, well, this is where I was getting my spiritual nourishment. Mm. And because of that, I felt that it was important um, that my financial um, support to that meeting um, was important. And um, for various reasons, it became um, evident that 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 the best way for me to do that and to was to connect and become a part of the meeting. Mm. And um, it was a little strange for them. <laughs> <laughs> and we were and, and, and it was kind of like, well, um, how do we do this? And, and so, you know, mm. we went through the regular process of clearness and all of that. And, and so I continued going back and forth. And then at one point... So back and forth meaning you would come to the U.S.? And then go back to go Kenya. Go back to Kenya, yeah. Wow. Because I am from here. And Priscilla came to the United States during the year. She's mm-hmm. um, um, she's very well known mm-hmm. um, and, and would come and travel. So when she was here, I would travel with her. Mm-hmm. And then when I would go there, I would travel with her there. Mm-hmm. And she would come here and we would travel together. And then at one point she said, you know, it's really important for you to you know, you need to find out about friends in the U.S. You're from the U.S., you need to find out. <laughs> <laughs> she said that to you. She said that to me. And, good. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, because of her background, she knew more about what that meant than I did. <laughs> so well, my knowledge was what I, you know, what I read about early friends. Right. And so... um so, and then we're just traveling around, primarily programmed meetings mm-hmm. in, in Kenya. And then um, I started, I, I got my minute and I started traveling and went through cultural shock in the U.S. <laughs> or Quaker shock or whatever you want mm-hmm. to call it. And where was that first minute from? What? what? It was from, from um, my meeting in Zoya. And the first meeting I attended, I think, was at Bar Harbor meeting. Oh, so it was back. It was. I, I met it. Yeah. I, I attended. So you, were, when you, I left, traveled, you left Ohio, and that wasn't really home for you. Right. That. Okay. Um, I was born in Ohio, but um, that wasn't that was that 
you know, went to, you know, go to college yeah. and you go and visit yeah. during special occasions, that kind of thing. <laughs> and and at this point, my children were all grown mm. in college. Um, so I had the flexibility to uh, be a released friend. Right. So being able to, to travel was, was very interesting. And I've, I've, I've attended meetings, um, you know, in Maine, in uh, on the West Coast, on the East Coast, in mm-hmm. the South. Uh, throughout and, the Religious Society of Friends program and unprogrammed and, and conservative friends mm-hmm. and evangelical. So all over the U.S. And, yes. and all the branches. And all the different branches. There's not many of us who have done that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a blessing. That's it great. Was a blessing so to do that. how do you think, I mean, in some ways this feels like a silly question, but I think it's good to talk about it. What are some of the ways in which you felt culture shock? in the United States meeting? So there were certain things that really, um, that that came to me that let me know this is who I am. I was very comfortable being a missionary Baptist. I grew up and, and, uh, but there were certain things and practices that I was still uncomfortable with. Women did not have leadership roles largely. During that time, there were, you know, in terms of pastoring and, and, and that kind of thing. For the missionary Baptists. Yeah. yeah. So just a lot of those differences growing up in the church and seeing women do so much of the work and, and you know, just just never connected for me. And uh, I was raised by a very strong uh, woman and, um, you know, it just didn't seem just. Hmm. And, you know, there were some other things that, Theologically, that just didn't fit with my spirit. Mm. Largely, it was the issue in regards to gay and lesbian relations and in the church, to the church. Mm-hmm. I, I I had a challenge with, with that. There were things that just didn't feel right for me. And for me, um, there's certain things that I knew I did not understand. And that we as human beings don't understand. Mm. And for those things, I, I kind of felt like, um, well, who am I to judge? Mm. And it just didn't feel right for me. Mm. And so when I found out about Quakerism and that there is the diversity, uh, it felt more authentic. Mm. And for me, it see, it didn't matter whether I was heterosexual or not. For me, it was about the issue of whether it was uh, really reflected right relationship, if it was just. Mm. And so when I, when, I, when I found out that I didn't have to sign on the dotted line saying I believe this or that about something that did not directly pertain to me mm-hmm. and that I was not clear about at that time, I felt like I had found a place where I could bring my whole self, where I could, mm. I could, I could be really authentic. No, I want to back up like two minutes because I think it's fascinating that you. I don't know as if I've heard many people say that the Religious Society of Friends in the United States is very diverse. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but maybe theologically diverse is that kind theologically of? diverse? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, diversity comes in many forms. Mm-hmm. We're still working on desegregating it racially, though. Right. But so that's really interesting. So you like you were drawn to the fact. I'm testing this. Mm-hmm. You were drawn to the fact that there was a wide variety of of kind of people's relationships and articulations of their own spirituality and theology. That was really appealing to you because you felt like you could show up 
as your full self there? I felt it was a more authentic space. Mm. Yeah, it, it felt more authentic mm. because I, I recognize that we all grow just like we all grow physically different. We all grow spiritually different. Mm -hmm. And it seemed to me that that having a space where folks were growing at their own rate in their own way just made sense to me. Mm. And that was that was the diversity that mm. I had. At, and I I did not know about how the interworkings of it, how conservative friends got along with evangelical friends, with unprogrammed friends. I didn't know about the relational things. I knew about the history mm -hmm. of Quakerism. I had studied that. Mm -hmm. uh, but in terms of, of, of what does that mean for today, how the, the history had impact upon uh, our mm -hmm. relationships with one another today, I had no knowledge about. So that's what Priscilla was trying to get me to see. And then you, know? you kind of discovered it right. firsthand, traveling. Yeah. yeah. There is another uh, thing that um, that happened one night. We would have these conversations. I called them John Boy conversations because when we would travel, we would have this time when we would be in our beds at night and, you know, whatever was on our heart, we would kind of share. And we were talking about an aspect that appeared in both of our communities. Mm -hmm. And it, it had to do with communities of color, particularly in the Religious Society of Friends, because that's what we were, mm -hmm. that's the context in which we were dealing, could not uh, have the same sense of joy, reverence, appreciation for the gifts of people from their own culture as they did for European Americans. Mm -hmm. And I explained to her that we have a term in the U.S. called internalized oppression mm -hmm. that deals with that an aspect of that um, of that understanding. And we talked about um, the issue of of cultures that are are that are grounded where the white culture is the norm. Mm -hmm. And so that's the the whole issue of of racism, uh, individual systemic and how that plays on our relationships um, with one another and our understanding of ourselves and our children. And we talked about all of the historical things that we know of, the blue eye, the brown eye doll, you know, all of those things um, um, that we, mm -hmm. we learn about when we study about race and, and its impact on our identity. And there, that is when there was kind of a change um, in our relationship, because that is where the, the the concerns and the leading started to unfold for you, for me, and because as we traveled and she got to know more people of color within the religious society of friends, she would ask me questions like, "Why can't people of color just forget about slavery?" Mm -hmm. You know, and realizing, and at first I was kind of like, "What do you mean?" <laughs> What do you mean? Why can't we forget about it? Recognizing, uh, although she did recognize the 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 you know the impacts, the uh, the impact today in mm -hmm. some ways, but she did not have that historical memory mm -hmm. or experience. And is Priscilla white? Is, no, she's no. African American. I mean, she's she's African. African. <laughs> she's, see, African. she's asking why in the United States can't you get over it? Right. Interesting. And a lot of it was from her lack of direct experience mm -hmm. about that. Mm -hmm. And uh, because we both consider ourselves followers of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so 
you know, uh, and for me, the issue of racism is not only is it not a good thing, it is not it in terms of it's morally wrong. Mm -hmm. And for me, the the witness to that, to the issue of racism is just as much a part of our our spiritual condition as as any of the other so-called spices that we we talk about. Mm -hmm. And if I have to say uh, one thing that is really challenging for me on a day-to-day basis Mm -hmm. is when I often meet friends who say to me, we all know racism is bad, but what does that have to do with our spiritual? And it's funny because I've heard comments from folks, uh, whether it's with folks who have a leading on earth care and other aspects of, of, of their leadings, I, I don't understand how they cannot see that, that the work of racism is a spiritual uh, calling. Mm-hmm. The most challenging um, aspect of this work, or one of the most challenging, is for folks to mm-hmm. come to a place for friends, mm-hmm. European-American friends, to come to an understanding that uh, the Friends Center for Racial Justice and the work on anti-racism is not just about a social justice, something else to march about. And it's not just for a niche of people who care about, exactly. quote, the people who care about anti-racism, quote. Right, <laughs> right. I personally believe that European Americans who are friends, it is just as much, just as important for those friends to recognize uh, that and, and, to, and to see this as, as an aspect of our of our individual and our um our organizational work uh, as people of color. It is not just the work for, for friends of color. And the more that we connect with people and folks come here, that is that has been the blessing this past year. Friends share how when they first came, it was because they knew racism was bad and they were trying to do a good thing. Mm-hmm. And um, coming to recognize how racism has affected them and then it becomes a different journey. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Uh, James Evans is a um, black theologian who was, who was my theology professor at Colgate-Rochester Seminary. Oh. And he says that, uh, I want to get his language right, he says that uh, racism is the foundational sin of the United States. Yep. And and he he does that on purpose. It's both the foundation, right, mm-hmm. the economic labor and all of the, those justice issues, mm-hmm. but it's also the foundational sin mm-hmm. that that kind of much of what our power and privilege is premised on. Right. On this, and and, it's and I in do you believe then. that. Yes, it is. I believe that it is yeah. a sin. It's not. It's not about a choice. Yeah. Um. And I just don't feel that any of us have a choice. Right. Uh, if if we say that that we believe in nonviolence, do we feel that we have a choice about? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. I was just just talking to somebody this week, Monday this week. I said, you know, not everyone likes this conversation, but you know, there is something about talking about white supremacy as as a, a kind of an unavoidable sin. I said, no one, a lot of people within Quakerism don't like talking about, about sin. Mm-hmm. You know, they're born with sin and this and that. That language is very scary. I said, but all of the theological reasons to do that are the same reasons to acknowledge white privilege. Exactly. You don't want it. I'm sure you don't want it. I don't want it. Too bad. 
you got it because the system is way bigger than one person Mm -hmm. and a lot of resistance. And I said, they said, well, if the, I said, now the reason (laughs) that you feel uncomfortable is because that's us. That's our deal. (laughs) And it's nice when, 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 um, uh, in terms of relationship. Uh, so, so one of the first things that, um, we worked on when we first opened was was asking about the question of what is the what is Quakerism? What is the essence of Quakerism? And what is what is culture? What is white American culture? As we um, spent time together sharing about lots of stuff, folks began to be able to see that things that they automatically assumed were normal were just cultural preferences. And one of, one of the reasons um, that I, I I think things are um, you know, we're still at, I wouldn't say we're at the infant stage, we're toddling around, <laughs> you know, after a year, but um, friends in, uh, in, in the meeting, in Ithaca meeting, before I even came, recognized this hunger in, 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 in themselves and had already uh, came to the point of really saying, we feel the need for a greater commitment to the work of anti-racism, but Um, was not sure what that path was. So Angela's story about the way that she came to find Quakers is different from and anyone I've heard before. Yes. <laughs> I was going to say from all the other stories that we have documented in this project, but really from, from anyone that I have heard that she, it sounds, you, you're the one who spoke to her, but it sounds to my ears like she learned about Quakers in seminary and, and heard that this triennial, presumably the FUM triennial, was happening in Kenya. So she journeyed to Kenya to investigate this religious group yeah but i think i i mean yes I, I, I that's my understanding but i think the maybe the more important thing underneath it is that she was she got yoked to a minister right and kind of learned from the inside out the work of 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 ministry uh traveling um and in some ways i, I guess it's a lie for me to say i've never heard this before this is the old story Fox would roll into town in meeting for worship, would preach, and people would go, what is that? I want some of it. And then they would go and follow him. Oh, also, I read that in the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) Right. They'd follow him out to a public meeting and then to more. Yeah, but I mean, so it it seems like that's what happened here, you know, that she really found like there was some power and then realized she needed to kind of uh, bring her life into that and so became a member because she realized that that was where her life was even though this is she's from the u.s um and now she's in a member of uh in an african kenyan muslim meeting right and it also speaks to the way in which priscilla the pastor of that meeting recognized gifts in her and was willing to to reach out and nurture and invite her to her home she, she was serious about that work Right. And I think, again, in terms of the project here, 
what one of the things we see there is not only that they're doing the work, but that during the chant at night during their John Boy conversations, they're able to reflect and process kind of what's happened during the day, you know, what's coming next, and and spiritual deepening, and they're able to then process not just what's happening in the moment or what's happening right in front of you, but they began to have conversations about what might be next steps for for Angela, so that the process of kind of that ministerial work is also self-formation work. Right, right. I, I like the way that she says that after that particular late-night conversation where she explained the concept of internalized racism, and it there was a shift, and that was the beginning of the unfolding of the leading for her. Right, and we'll talk a more about the, her leadings in the next section as it opens up. But one of the things I think that is useful here, kind of before we transition back to Angela, is to reflect on how clear she is that um, the work of racial justice isn't, quote, just another thing to march for. And my sense is that if it, if she thought it, even if she thought it was important, if she really felt like it was just a, a, a social issue, she wouldn't carry it with the same weight and power that she really does fundamentally understand this work as a as a spiritual undertaking that's right and that's essential for her and i don't know is it, i i don't think everyone who engages in social justice work conceives of their those their commitments in, in such a kind of thoroughly spiritual or theological way she was very clear from the get-go i mean you heard i didn't even prompt her she just said, this is a spiritual thing. I don't understand why people don't understand. It's a spiritual thing. And it's a spiritual journey for everyone. Right. And it, it is about justice, absolutely. And if we're really talking about justice, then we're talking about our, our faith commitments. Right. Yeah. Also in the Bible. It turns out. Yeah. Okay, so let's uh, hear a, a kind of where the conversation is about to shift into leadings, I think. That, yeah. Right. So let's talk about that. jump right into it then uh so you use the word released you are a released friend what does that mean or what did that mean to you and or what does that mean to you so uh, a released friend is a friend who travels with a minute from his or her meeting mm -hmm. uh and carries a concern mm -hmm. um so and it can be um it can be anything mm -hmm. that that the friend feels really um uh, has whatever leading that's on that person's heart mm. and um and so that's that's what i do so and i'm wondering if you could share what like what what a leading feels like to you um or or maybe it feels like multiple things but like what is what is that like for for you oh i think that that is one of the most challenging things questions that you can answer hmm. because um one of the things that i have recognized is that it's not about how it feels 
So my call to, to go to seminary um, was really strange. I did not feel called to be a pastor and doors open for me to be able to come that I was not looking. It was kind of like I was there and, mm-hmm. you know, things happened. But I did have this this thirst for studying religion. And, and so, you know, it's like one thing happened went for another. I went up to pick up my daughter, and then I met this person, and then that door opened, and I'm saying, well, no, I've got three kids in college. There's no way that I can go. <laughs> well, well, you know, then a, then housing opened up. Well, then, and then all I was going to have to do was pay for books. And then as all of these things started coming down, I found the perfect job where all I had to do was be, uh, I was an addiction counselor, and all I had to do was be uh, with a group of women in, a, in the first women's transitional program for women vets and be with them in the evenings when they come home. There was a whole support committee or whatever, and all I have to do is do what I love doing is having conversation around food. And anyone who's ever been here knows that that is my thing. I enjoy I enjoy cooking. I enjoy uh, building community around around the table. And uh, and it was, but it was nice and it was clean and I had all this space. I had been engaged in ministry for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, being Baptist, then we saw ministry separate from our lives. Now. You know, as Quakers, you know, we see it in a different uh, setting, but everything just seemed too right. The faith community that I was a part of at the time I became a Quaker uh, was an ecumenical community, uh, and the founder had friends who were friends. So I had become used to the practice of waiting worship. Our structure was built around support committees, mm. what we called mission groups, the Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C. And, and I, I said, and I said, this cannot be an authentic leading. It feels too comfortable. Everything just feels too right. Oh, meaning that it should feel challenging or hard? Right. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, this does, This is temptation. This does not feel like this is cannot be from God. This is wrong. And so in that situation, and this is why I believe community is so important, Mm. it was my support committee that helped me see. Mm. Because I had had thought, I'm going to go get my addiction counseling, and I'm going to work into one of our recovery places. I was like, I I just knew that's what God's plan was. And, you know, and I'm saying, but, but, but. And my support committee helped me see Mm. that yeah, this this feels right. And so I, you know, sitting there, everybody crying. I was heading to Boston, you know. In that situation, uh, and it was a wonderful time, mm. you know, and I got to study, you know. Then there are other times when a leading feels very overwhelming and hard. Mm. And, Lord, I don't want to do this, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. I'm not the one. I don't have the gifts. Mm. I, you know, even being in the place where my grandmother, I remember her praying, "If Lord, give me the will for the will. If I don't have the will, mm-hmm. you know." And so, being in that situation where it feels, it is a very hard place to be. Mm. One of the things that I personally try 
say to myself when I'm in a place like that in terms of leaving and going somewhere mm. else or doing something different is when it feels hard to sit with it mm. because there is there from my experience there's a peace that comes mm. it's not that all of those things can get fixed mm. but there's just there's this peace this kind of you know it's kind of like when we're sitting in meeting and the meeting gets is gathered you know we cannot name exactly what that is but we all experience it or most of us experience it i can't say all for everyone but so it's that same kind mm. of thing mm. and then it's and then you know so that's really interesting and so if i'm i think what i'm hearing is uh beca- because it can look a variety of ways because, exactly because god can show up in our lives in different ways in different contexts and different mm-hmm. times it's almost like we we don't know what a leading is and that's one of the reasons we need community exactly is that right exactly that's exactly what i'm saying hmm. and not all of us we're all different we're all made differently some of us are more right-brained and some of us, you know, all of those things that define certain ways of being in the world. And for me, I personally feel like when I'm on someone's clearness committee, mm-hmm. I don't try to to look at their how their leading pans out according to my, just like I was talking about that sense in regards to my, to, to my sense of leading, that sense of peace. I do feel that when we're we're seeking discernment that 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 can happen and it doesn't necessarily have to look like it looked the last time right yeah that this is may this may be too much of a tangent but i'm really that's kind of what's rising for me is conversations with people who are like emerging into their gifts or leadings and are trying to kind of have a have a like an intuition around how important oversight or you know, accountability is and wanting people to kind of be with them and, and help them discern. Mm-hmm. And then having committees who say, well, everything seems fine here. Mm-hmm. And that's not the point. That's not the point. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 right. That, that the way you think about it, and I, I think me too, it's not about, well, are your paychecks in? Do you have food? Do you have a roof over your head? It's about, and now how are you? And now how is it with spirit? And right. that, that constant, not a ag- not aggressive like finger wagging, but so are you, how is it now? Like, how is God now? How is God now? And it, because it looks different at different times. I think that a support committee or a clearness committee is, is a gathering of people. So we gather around this specific concern and it's not about all of the things that you just mentioned, um, just those things. It is about the commitment, just like we say about worship, Oh, I hate it when people say silence. <laughs> oh, no, uh, uh, I, I like it, that it's quiet. It, yeah, yeah, I like that it's quiet too. But it's it's waiting <laughs> worship, and that's what a that's what a support or a clearness committee is. Mm. It is it is a commitment that uh, each of the members feels led to dwell with with someone to dwell with this concern together. Yeah, no, and that's and that's I think uh, certainly uh, really important to the way that Christina and I think about it is that it's not dwelling with the person; it's dwelling, it's dwelling with, with the, the concern or the gift that they're carrying or stewarding. Does right. that match your sense? Exactly, of it? exactly. Yeah, yeah. 
I think that's a fairly unpopular, not unpopular, people dislike it, but uncommon right. perspective among, right. among friends. Would you agree with that? Yes, I agree. And I think that sometimes, um, you know, our hearts and our minds can say, oh, this just feels like this person or that person, or this is just the right. It has nothing to do with, with any of those qualifications, so to speak. I, I do believe that only God knows the heart. Mm. I, I just have this, this sense of passion around discernment. And I do have a concern with how busy our lives have gotten because there has to be a commitment to, to time and to spending time for discernment mm. if we're going to, um, mm -hmm. if we're going to do what we say we do, wait on the spirit. Mm -hmm. And that's what it is. And each of those persons on that committee has a, a, the same uh, sense of call as the as the focus person. So 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 those individuals have their own discernment process about whether they're led to in, you know to enter in this to this concern with the focus person. Yeah, yeah, it, it's interesting, and I, I'm I'm curious to see what your thoughts are on this because it has always seemed to me like a grave disservice to the tradition when I hear people reporting that their um, anchor committees or support committees say to them, well, what do you want to do? Mm -hmm. As if it's just about, about a preference. Want. Right. Um, and I think to the people that are seriously trying to say, come along with me, like help me see if I'm supposed to be doing X, Y, and Z. Right, right. To say to the person, well, what do you want? That's it's like an undermining of their attempts to be faithful. Attempts to be faithful. That is so true. My birthday's Friday. And um, one of the things that I, I, I can say about that reality is that I've lived long enough to be so glad that God did not give me what I thought I wanted. <laughs> so there is something in having that experience uh, for me that fuels my, my, my faith. And, and, and I think that there are certain practices that we can nourish in our, in our lives to help us reflect and to be able to, to see, to have those lenses, to see those things. And that's the, you know, that is one of the other concerns that I have in regards to the busyness that we have in our lives and that we're moving so fast. Miss those things. And it also seems to me, I mean, I don't know as if I have a spiritual conviction of this, but it seems to me that, you know, one of the ways that, like, some of the negative ways that oppression shows up in our culture, not just friends' culture, but just culture in general, is if we keep going too fast to really interrogate it, then just stay status quo. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. if, if some of these things are, like, misogyny and white supremacy and some of these things that are so, like, deep, exactly, <laughs> that the only way you see them is if you slow down to like take a look, because otherwise you just be like, "That's the world." Because mm -hmm. <laughs> we're reacting to the manifestations, not the root problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then we will continue to do, you know, status quo. Uh, we put band aids on it, and we try to, you know, um, make it feel better. And sometimes mm -hmm. the only way to get through it does not feel. Right. And that's that's the, the issue in regards to, to racism uh, in the work that we care. And, and friends of color, people of color have, have, have challenges around uh, how internalized racism has manifested in their lives as well. 
when asked about, okay, what is my vision for, for friends, uh, I, I, I really pray, and I've actually said this in terms of our yearly meeting, I am hoping that friends, as we start recognizing some of the systemic manifestations, um, that we will recognize that white privilege is a manifestation of internalized racism and that we will, we will get behind the work for friends of color to do their own work in internalized racism with the same sense of commitment, financial dollars, uh, and support as we have gathered around the call of white privilege. Um, now, we still have a lot of <laughs> ways to go in regards to the issue of white privilege and, and de you know, uh, decentering whiteness as our norm in terms of our, our, our practice, our organizational practice. Yeah, and it seems like part of that is also, or hearing that, the even <laughs> the insidious ways that it lives in our lives, that, that e the continual focus on, for example, like white supremacy or white privilege still centers whiteness. This centers whiteness, and, right. and that's the, the big yeah, that's that that's the line, and uh, we talk about that a lot in our in our classes here mm. at the Friend Center. Mm. So, so uh, one of the one of the challenges, and inevitably, it 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 results from uh, an individual friend's coming and saying, um, "How how how much am I how much am I allowed to bring and share with you? <laughs> you know." Uh, before I cross that line with you doing the work of educating me, recognizing that um, uh, we all need to do our own work, and, and you know, there's lots of anti-racism understanding around around that process, and um, and, and I think it's something that we individually need need to um, to work out on a case by case situation. And I'm trying to think; I can't remember who it is. Uh, who who does this workshop, um, and she's in the the line with her sister who 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 presents as Caucasian, and she's an African American. Yeah, so how much is she allowed to use her white privilege? Yeah. You know, with with their niece, with her niece there, uh, without it becoming her speaking on behalf of her sister, who manifests as as a, a person of color. And that's, I think, I mean, I, I hear, you know this, I'm sure, but I'll just say it back to you for the sake of saying it. I mean, it seems to me so clear that if this work were not spiritual, it'd be way easier to give up on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that it has to be about the dailiness of it, even yeah. if you don't know mm -hmm. what it's going to look like tomorrow. Does that yeah. seem right yeah. to you? It, it, that's definitely what it is. It's a day-by-day -day situation. and. And um, the whole saying, you don't get to take your ball and go home, um, applies to us all. Uh, for me, if, if, if we come to the point where we say it is not a choice, then we really need to look at what does that mean. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a long road of building trust uh, um, around that. One of the biggest challenges you mentioned early about um, the workshops and all of that, and, and there is that tendency, um, you know, to do, to do.
So um, I, I have a distinct memory of sitting on the couch in the interview with Angela thinking, oh, this feels right. Kind of a... I mean, it's some some part of it was cognitive, but also it was a kind of a, a visceral experience of this is a different thing than I've heard and feeling really like there was some power to it. She essentially says, you have no idea what a leading is. You don't know how it feels. <laughs> sometimes you'll think it feels too good, and so it shouldn't be a leading. And then sometimes you realize a leading feels good. And then sometimes it'll feel really hard and you'll think it's not a leading because the leading is supposed to feel good and it turns out that's a leading. And so she essentially just says, I don't know. I don't know what a leading is. It could be anything. That's why we have to discern and test in community. And I, I wanted, what was interesting about it, I, my experience was cognitively kind of my thoughts were like, well, what about the five true tests of a leading or whatever the Hugh Barber thing? There's, there are some practices we have to say, how do you know what a leading is? Right, right. Some criteria. Right. And I was like, well, what about that one? And then so-and-so says it's this one. And what about this thing? And what about the queries? And the, like, there's, there's all this thought that I have, you know, knowledge that emerged. Knowledge that emerged. But when I was sitting there, I thought, oh, no, something about this feels really right. And she returns to this prayer that her grandmother gave her. Give me the will if I have no will, Lord. And it seems to really point towards how essential for her the community is in the process of discernment and support of the, of the ministry. Well, absolutely. And she had the great experience to be a member of the Church of the Savior. Note, this is the second time that the Church of the Savior has come up in um, an interview. It was there in Elizabeth Dearborn as well. That's right. Yeah. She talks about how relying on community and becoming clear that there is that peace. What I heard was that the the ultimate test was when in community there was that feeling of gathering, of, of a kind of a felt sense of truth among those who were gathered and worshiping about the concern, that that, that was the indication. Right, that... It wasn't necessarily about the feeling of the carrying of the concern for the um, what she calls a released friend. Right. It's not about if she feels uncomfortable or if she feels excited. Or comfortable. Right. It's, she, it's about the testing in worship. Correct. Yeah. And even though she talks about when she was called to go to seminary, she was going to move from D.C. to Boston. She was going to leave. People were crying, but they're like, it's the right thing to do. They were clear. They had that sense of peace even though it didn't feel good for them either and i think she i think she calls it or names it uh gathering like it feels like a gathered meeting right? that's right she yeah. does yeah it's really interesting to me angela seems to have really high not standards but her hopes for what we can do and how we do it is really intense that in terms of the support committee who's supporting someone who's in in ministry or is released she says they're each doing their own discernment they have to have a commitment to right. dwell on the concern together. And then she says, support people ought to have the same sense of call to the committee as the focus person has to the concern that they're carrying. Like, that's a heck of a, I mean, I, I, I am resonant with similar kind of ideas. We've talked about it in some other episodes, I think, but that's a really intense 
<laughs> version of it. Right. That they have to have the same leading to to be com- what, what's the language to con- a commitment to dwell on the concern together. That that same leading to serve because it's she she's also one of these folks who says it's not really about the person who's carrying the concern. It's about people coming together to sit with the concern. Right. To to be and to a commitment to that kind of waiting and dwelling. Before I move on to something else that she said, I wanna I wanna maybe push back a little bit what you said that she has high hopes. I'm not sure that that she actually has high hopes. I think she has maybe we could characterize them as high expectations, but they're expectations that are not inconsistent with the the robustness that the the tradition offers us. It's there. It's not that it's not there. We just don't, we don't come into it with our own set of equal expectations. Yeah. No, no, that, uh, that's a, thank you for, for putting a finer note on that. I don't mean she has high hopes, like she's highfalutin or something. I, I'm, I was impressed and inspired by the degree to which she expected a level of commitment. And if the committees that were appointed to support released friends in her language, ministers or people carrying a concern ministry, came to the support of that ministry with the same intensity that the individuals who are carrying the concern had and felt for the concern they're carrying, the consequences of that would be spiritually profound and the ripples would be intense. I think many times the people who come to those committees do not come with the same level of fervor and sense. And the invitation, it seems, that Angela is naming and her expectations are ones, if we saw more of, I think would have profoundly spiritually deepening consequences for the Religious Society of Friends. That's what I think I meant. I agree. And what I hear as I hear echoes of Sandra Cronk's Pendle Hill pamphlet on gospel order, which she begins with the statement that to the effect of early friends expected and experienced the inbreaking of the Holy Spirit in their worship. And there's something about the connection between entering with that expectation and the experience. Yeah. And I think, you know, in retrospect here, I mean, I guess this is why we reflect on this. The other thing that's really notable is I don't hear any judgment in Angela. Like all those other support committees who don't come with that same commitment to dwell on the concern, they're junk or they're not doing it right. Or, you know, like I don't hear that energy at all. It's just to say, it's just saying, this is what we ought to do. Right. And it, it functions for me, at least kind of invitationally or inspirationally. That's right. I also appreciate the emphasis that she has on um, making the space to do discernment, the concern that she carries for the amount of busyness in our lives that gets in the way. It's not only prevents us from doing daily discernment or being available to be on a support committee fully showing up, but I think she talks about it later when she she's talking really about the work of racial justice and that she seems to be saying that there's always a tendency to do, to do. And maybe this work is not about doing, but it's about 
waiting. It's the, that spiritual work that, that isn't something that we can do, but that God does. Well, I don't, I don't think there's any maybe at all in her. She says, we're too busy. Yeah. If you're going to take discernment as seriously as she wants to, that you got to give up on some of the things you do because you simply won't have enough time to really wait and test. Right. And so it's not like, oh, busyness is bad. We shouldn't do it because it's bad. It's if you want to live your life really trying to follow leadings and leadings really require that kind of commitment to dwell on the concern over and over again to kind of say, ah, again, I think it comes back to that prayer from her grandmother. I don't really feel like I got the will for it today. Today, I just want to go do the thing. The prayer is, God, give me the will when I have no will. I really do want to try and live my life fully under discernment. Well, then we have to clear some stuff out so we've got space for it. Right. And there's an aspect of it also, and you brought this up in the conversation, and I think she affirmed it, that that space also provides a room for a different kind of perception, for a different kind of sight. And I think that it certainly is related to discernment, but it's subtly, subtly different. Can you say more about what you're hearing there? It was almost visually for me, visual for me when you were talking about it. You said, let me just get it, that misogyny and white supremacy can only be seen if we slow down. And I imagined myself, perhaps, kind of rushing busily through life. Through and just sort of like going through the structures and the the motions of my day, but slowing down, sort of like Neo in the Matrix, being able to kind of see those structures and systems at work. Yeah, I mean, yes. Uh, to to kind of sharpen that, right? We see the consequences of of patriarchy and the kind of ways that uh, class and race kind of deaden and destroy. If we, well, I think, I think what I was thinking then and there was if we want to get past just the symptoms and kind of find out where the where it comes from the spiritual seeds of war that we carry around racism and sexism etc then we need to do that discernment work of seeking out them i mean right that's the kind of early idea around holding people in the light or asking to be held in the light is to have the light illuminate those things that we don't want to see. Right. right. That's what convincement and conviction is. Right. The conviction allows us to recognize the things we're carrying that we don't and want to carry. And bro- our brokenness. Mm-hmm. And and invite in the transformation of and, and, and conversion of, of manners so you end up being a different person because you're, you spiritually work towards seeing the things that you carry that you don't want. Right. And changing your life so that it's harder for you to carry them without noticing it. Um, I just, that's just to clarify, because I don't want anyone to think like you don't notice racism. Oh, no, I wasn't saying that. I was, I was thinking more of the underlying structures mm-hmm. and, ha- and how they work. We certainly see the effects and casualties. Yeah. And, the, and in, in parallel, e- even if it's not about racism or sexism or any kind of structural oppression, there's a spiritual truth there, which is that our busyness can sometimes keep us from figure, realizing we're um, our priorities are out of whack, right? The the Ignatians call the the disordered affection that like you can spend your time on something 
instead of what you're called to spend it on. And so that that practice of discernment helps you see both personally and potentially societally like what we're placing our energies on. is ministry in the religious society of France? I wrote down earlier, you said, uh, um, at a time when you were with the Mission Baptist, Missionary Baptist, you'd said, you know, we, we I think the Baptists, uh-huh. used to think that, quote, ministry was separate from our regular lives, but as friends, we think different. Right. So what do friends think about ministry? And I don't, you don't have to speak for all friends. Right, For right. you, Angela, yeah, what yeah. does ministry mean? I mean, because it seems, to, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me that you have a clear sense of calling to this work as a released friend to kind of serving that it's on, that it's on you that you that you that you carry it and so the question is what is it what is this See, ministry that's the thing i don't feel like it's on me interesting and Great. um and have um, you ever i mean no no and 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 i i but there are moments it's it's you know i the tidal wave will come mm-hmm. and um let me clarify. You, I, I'm thinking on you that like you're carrying a concern. That you're carrying. A that concern. you're carrying. I don't feel like I carry a concern totally. Okay, great. Um, I feel like um, I am a fundamental believer in 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 the gifts of everyone. I believe everybody has a has, has gifts, and they have callings and they have leadings, whether they can name them or not. Mm-hmm. There was a time in which um, we did what we called evoking the gifts of one another. We spent time with one another. You can't name a gift in another person if you just spend time with them for an hour on Sunday. Yeah. Um, so um, that's a very important process for me, spending time with one another. And in terms of, of carrying that leading, um, for me... The sense of carrying a leaning, a leading would be, one would find oneself in a hierarchical place Mm -hmm. in which I carry the main responsibility, I carry, Mm -hmm. and I don't see that. Mm -hmm. um, Just as we have clerks that are different than pastors Mm -hmm. in other denominations, I feel the same way about the person who's carrying the leading. And Gordon Cosby from the, the the Church of the Savior where I was before I became a friend, he would say, when you feel strongly that this leading inside you and there's not another person that can stand beside you, you your work at that time is to keep speaking the leading, uh, to keep sharing. And you do that as it as, as way opens. And, um, and so I feel that that's the way that's the way our work is manifested. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's been very challenging with my work 
on the outside, uh, <laughs> on the outside of Quakerism, I, I, I'm an early childhood specialist and, and I've opened um, various daycares and preschools and, and working with staff and, 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 and creating a structure when folks are used to a more top-down structure. And, and I, I share often about these two women who were just wonderful sisters that came to me and they went through the whole process of visiting the school and everything. And, and so I was talking to them about their gifts, you know. What aspect of, of, of working with the children do you feel called to or whatever? And, well, whatever you tell us to do, Miss Hopkins. And so, like, after like 20 minutes of me saying, but, and trying to explain that to them, we will do whatever. We love the children. We love the staff. Mm -hmm. And we will do whatever you tell us to do. Mm -hmm. So it was very hard for me to try to find out mm -hmm. what they were feeling called to. Mm -hmm. But I think that we each have a piece. Mm -hmm. We have a piece, we carry a piece of the truth around something. I don't feel it's mine to carry. And it's also been a, a, a major part structurally here at the Friends Center for Racial Justice. Mm -hmm. uh, the connecting piece with you know, who's teaching who. I don't feel I'm, I'm not here teaching, you know, even when I'm facilitating uh, our class. I, I, I came here and I'm coming along, folks, with their concern around anti-racism. But everyone, and we say this a lot, <laughs> we say everyone is responsible for, for the group. Mm -hmm. So we say a lot of things just like, you know, our whole attitudes about structure and hierarchy and all of that. But then there's certain practices that are just internalized with us. Mm -hmm. And so it feels, it feels different. So our structure feels different mm -hmm. for, for many folks. Mm -hmm. uh, it has taken a while. And that seems to be right now, folks are writing re a reflection paper right now about we just celebrated our one year. Mm -hmm. So how has your vision of community changed since, mm -hmm. you know, you started a year ago? So that's interesting. So it, it it might be not so if I'm getting the the kind of spirit of what you're saying, it's not that you have more responsibility than others, uh, but but that the kind of responsibility you have is different or something. Mm -hmm. It's not more or more important or something. It's right. just that it's different. It's different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just like the clerk's role is. Just like the person who holds the meeting. Uh, mm. Those are different roles. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it, it's a mistake to say it's not different, but it's also a mistake to say it's not. So it, it's a mistake to say it's not important, but it's also a mistake to say it's more important. It's more important. Right. So both of those are problems. Yeah. yeah. Because the primary calling is is to really to help everyone find their 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 leading mm. around this concern. Mm. When we come together, it's it's our work is is structurally how, you know, you know, getting to know one another and finding mm -hmm. out, you know, Susie and Anna both write, but Anna hates to write and she may be better at writing, but this is what she's feeling led to do, making those kinds yeah. of, um, yeah. you know. That's a really, I mean, you didn't say this, so I'm not going to say you said this, but what it just occurred to me is a really beautiful definition of ministry would be to say whatever it looks like, and it will look like different things in different places at different times. One of the fruits should be people coming into greater contact with like life and leading. Exactly, exactly. And I personally believe even when it's hard, even when, you know, oh, you're just like exhausting and dreading it, it's there is something that, that, that 
energizes you and gets you up, mm. you know. Uh, I do think that there's a certain amount of discipline that comes that, and I think I say discipline, but it's discipline that is birth of the fruit of, of, of having gone through. I talk about prayer a lot. Like we don't need prayer when we're engaging in the act of prayer. The most important time we need prayer is in those moments when our spirit is so broken and we just can't find uh, the words. We can't find the, the the focus, the concentration to be able to 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 come when there has been an experience that has caused us such grief. It has been those times when I just it's my habit to get up at this certain time, and that's I, I it's waiting worship for me, and I show up. Sometimes I just don't want to show up. And it's not about being tired or being, it's just my spirit just feels, you know, how you can sometimes get spun up and it's, you know, and it's like, no, I'm going to hang on to my anger. I'm not ready to let my anger go, you know, and it's hard. My grandmother said, it's hard to stay mad at a person that you pray for regularly, mm-hmm. you know. And it goes back to the right, give me the will to have the will. Give me the will to have the will. And sometimes all we can do is show up. And it's always been for me when I've been in those spaces where I just can barely just be there. Then for me, mm-hmm. that th- those are the miracles that I see mm-hmm. in the world, you yeah. know. Yeah, and it, it, I, I, I don't know. I'd be curious to hear your experience about this. But my experience has been like the, part of the the importance of that discipline, whatever it looks like for you. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. I think it's a mistake to say this is what your discipline has to be. Right. Yeah. But whatever it looks like for somebody, that's an important part to kind of mm, to help stay true to whatever the leading is. Mm-hmm. Because to the extent that any friend has any authority, it's authority by virtue of, of the spirit not by virtue of like a position or something. Mm -hmm. And so to make sure that we're acting out of that authority and not because I said so, Mm -hmm. we need those practices to kind of keep us on the, on on the, like on the path. Mm -hmm. Otherwise we will, we will, I feel that we will just, will inevitably end up, which we have to, we always end up that way anyway. We have to pull (laughs) ourselves back. (laughs) You know, we'll be, we'll be searching for the next right thing, you know? What is the next right thing that's going to bring all of these people together for this workshop? What is the next right thing to, and then we start, for me, acting out of our own will without uh, seasoning mm-hmm. what we're hearing. Mm-hmm. And, and what hard work that is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and it's, it's, you know, and I think that it's inevitable. That's why, you know, that whole discipline which is basically just a period of, 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 of some process of reflection, of stopping and reflecting and saying, you know, showing up. That's why that's needed. Mm-hmm. I believe for me, I need that time mm-hmm. because I can, I can just go from A to B to C to D and, you know, come along spirit, you know, mm-hmm. you know, move a little faster. You know, I'll meet you down the road, you know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and it's interesting. You know, I I sometimes will say to people because in in the the ye olde Quaker books, we often will hear people talking about outrunning the guide. Mm-hmm. But but these days, I, I find myself just as frequently talking about people underrunning. Underrunning, exactly. 
Are yeah. You, are you afraid of living into this power that isn't yours, but that you're supposed to carry? Mm-hmm. You can show up. Oh, maybe you're being asked to show up more. Yep. Yeah. 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 So I must say that I really resonate with the concern that that Angela carries around gifts and that we can't, what is she, what's the, um, we can't evoke each other's gifts. That's such a lovely phrase. If we're only spending an hour with each other on Sunday, that really it requires knowing each other and, and spending that time together to help to lift up the gifts in each other. Um, and listening to some of the other pieces in this section, um, I wonder if I, I hear her discomfort around around hierarchies and and that to claim a leading or that you're carrying a concern might might put you in a in a position where you are directing other people. And I do think that sometimes people have a have a calling, have a special insight or concern that's laid upon them that energizes other people, that enables other people to step into their gifts because the person who's carrying the concern is fully living in into that concern and maybe even blazing a little bit of a trail, taking a leadership position. We're uncomfortable with leadership in the religious society. We're ambivalent about it. But I think that I think denying the importance of it might do us a disservice. And I'm not saying that she's denying that it's important. But I, I felt like I heard some echoes of that wider ambivalence around leadership in the religious society. Yeah, so listeners, this is a kind of a transparent facilitation moment. Christina and I kind of, are, are clear that not everyone we speak to and not all the interviews we do are, are with people who kind of think or say the same things that we do. And so part of leaving in some of these pieces of the conversation that we don't know what to do with is to remind you that this is kind of an ongoing dialogue that we all need to be having. And these conversations we think ought to be occurring more. So, you know, this is our way of saying, like, we don't really know what to do with Angela's comment that she doesn't carry a concern and she doesn't feel it on her because my experience is that she's profoundly gifted and there is some kind of, there's a concern she's carrying that is bearing incredible fruit. It's not my job to say, no, you're wrong, Angela, your experience of no, it's not your job. <laughs> God's gifts is incorrect. I have a better sense of it, but so we don't know what to do with it. She, her, she says, no, that's the thing. It isn't on me. And, and then tells that story around the preschool where right. she wants to invite those young women I guess what I would say, and I don't, I wouldn't want to kind of get in a fight with Angela about this. Hi, Angela, if you're listening, I don't want to fight you. But I guess the, the, the model I would ask about is, and I think maybe some of the ways that I understand ministry or having it on you, maybe that's the problematic part, but whatever, is in that preschool situation, the reason those women are not, they become accustomed to just kind of doing what people tell them because of the way the world is. 
And so Angela is saying, no, no, we want to name your own gifts. And I guess the way I think about what ministry is, is the reason that Angela can invite those young women to kind of think about their own sense of calling is because she's in charge. It's her preschool or she's a boss or a manager at that preschool. Like if she wasn't in charge, if she didn't have the ability inside of that school to allow for people to kind of have expression and agency, um, it would just end up looking like the rest of the world. So that what ministry is, is like putting up some, building a container in which people can live into their gifts. But someone needs to do that sometimes and say, no, 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 in here, we don't do it like the world does. In here, we don't want that kind of hierarchy. In here, I want to invite you into the fullness of your calling and your gifts. That's possible because she's leading. And leading doesn't have to mean hierarchy or diktat, which is often what we think leadership means. But I do think that there is a kind of leadership that's being exerted, even in that story, which she's using to show how hierarchy isn't what she wants. There's a different kind of leadership that can be modeled within friends. Right. It alludes to the notion of servant leadership. And I think she talks about it similarly when she talks about the workshops at the Friends Center for Racial Justice, where she says, everyone here, we say everyone has responsibility for the whole group. And that's possible because she's really clear about that and sets that cultural norm. That's a kind of leadership, making space for everyone to be able to take responsibility for the group. Right. I I have it written. I said this and she agreed. The primary calling is to have everyone come into greater contact with life and leadings. And again, this is really tricky. This is why these conversations are important. Everyone has to take responsibility for racism, but they didn't ask everyone to move into the Friends Center for Racial Justice. They asked Mm -hmm. Angela Hopkins. Right. And so how do we think about ourselves when we do this work? How do we think about others who are doing this work? This is tricky. And I don't know as if we know exactly how to how to do it. How some of us do it is different how well than others do. Not useful. We don't have a great answer to this, but we just want to kind of point out that we don't always know what to do or how to think about it ourselves. Right. That's why these conversations are so important. And I hope that people who are listening have begun with the other episodes and will certainly um, feel like this gives them permission to to have conversations with folks in your context, in your meeting or community. Yep. So we're about to close out this conversation with the money question. One of the reasons this comes up is because there has been an enormous amount of conversation around how we support ministry. We're here in New England yearly meeting where the Legacy Gift Fund kind of allows for some people to have funds available to do this work. That's different than all other yearly meetings. We're still trying, I think, here in New England to figure out what we think of this, how we conceive of it spiritually, how we deal with paying people. And there's a lot of concern. There is not everyone is clear it's a a good idea or a right idea. There's a lot of concern, kind of like Angela mentioned, around what happens if people get too much money and money becomes power, and therefore then they're the ones in charge, right? I think that's part of the, the worry that someone kind of takes too much responsibility or too much power on, and then other people feel like they don't need to do the work because someone's being paid to do it. Right. right. I think that's one of the big concerns. So 
we're aware, for example, of the the releasing ministry alliance, which is a, a project um, held by Von New and Viv Hawkins, who are really clear around the importance um, for people to be able to be supported in in their try their attempts to kind of live faithfully into their ministry, and sometimes the need to like pay for things like insurance or you know bread, and so. This conversation is a robust topic. I think there was a Friends Journal article about it. Right. This calms up a lot, which is one of the reasons why we we ask people, like, how have you managed to live and pay for your life if you've given over so much of it to this? So I uh, I launched into the but it's a, but it's a hard thing to talk about. Friends don't usually like talking about money. So we kind of save it to the end of the interview when people feel comfortable and say, hey, would you be willing to talk about the money thing? And then in this interview, I raised the question. And then Angela got really excited. So we'll, we'll close out here talking about the the nitty gritty, the kind of Quaker taboo of talking about finances, um, but in a joyous way, because uh, Angela loves talking about that topic, apparently. table. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about any of this. one of my favorite conversations. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and I know that it's not one of them. And again, it goes back to my roots at the Church of the Savior because we had a, an organization called the Ministry of Money. Mm-hmm. So so the, the reality is, is that money is a gift. Mm-hmm. It is a gift that is bestowed upon folks or they have acquired by other means. <laughs> that is just like any other gift. And what creates the problem for us, I believe, is that we we set money aside. We set our financial wealth aside as being different than of our other gifts. So for me as a follower of Jesus, money is just, it's another gift. And if we believe that the gifts are given to us for the benefit of the community, not just for the benefit of ourselves. We say those things, but what does that look like? When we engage in the process of recovery from racism or recovery for whatever our particular challenge is, because it's different for all of us, then then we learn more how to how to walk in right relationship to our gifts, with our gifts. And I also believe that uh, our biggest challenge structurally is directly connected with our perception around finances, the issue around scarcity, the issue around abundance, and um, the use of our financial gifts. That is to say, we're not not extending financial gifts in a way that frees people up to do work? Right. Do we really believe that only these people who are retired and have a pension who can afford to to engage in ministry or these who are, you know, no, if we say that every we believe that there is that in God of everyone and everyone is is, is, is endowed with gifts. To me, it is a privileging of certain gifts over others. And I don't believe in that. I think we suffer for the want of something that of many things that we're already gifted with. And that's because of the way that we that we're structured. Right. Like, I mean, 
the way you, somehow the way you just said this made me think, like, what are we missing out on because some of our members have to take that second shift? And so they're so tired that they can't mm-hmm. spend a little bit more time in prayer or in that book or in that conversation or, you know, what are we limiting our friends from? Right. And it, and, and it's, it's insidious in our, in our structure throughout. So we say we want everyone to be at the table, but when we have meetings that only meet at certain times, what is it, you know, how's that working for folks who have childcare needs? If we meet during certain times of the year, what does that say for folks whose primary work, like in New England, where touristry, you know, that's a big part, um, if they're not free during that particular time, because that's where they make the bulk of that money to, to sustain themselves for the rest of the year, what is that saying about whether we really care about, I don't mean to say care, but that's what I, you know, that's just the reality. Mm-hmm. If we really want everyone to be at the table, then we need to structure ourselves in such a way that everyone can show up and be present. Yeah. And I don't believe that I'm being idealistic about yeah. this. That seems to speak for itself. So um, I think we'll just close. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much, Angela, for for taking your time on that day to speak with me. It was a it was a pleasure, and it was a a gift to me to kind of hear all the the ways in which you have um, clarity about things and speak about them in a way that is different than um, I've heard before in lots of cases. Yes, thank you, Angela Hopkins, for sharing your story and and being so uh, clear about about the things that she had the insights that she's gathered over the years we also want to give thanks to fresh pond monthly meeting here um, in cambridge massachusetts we're really grateful for the support we have from that body and from our committees of care and accountability and support here at the meeting which have care for the ministry that christina carries and the, and the, and the one that i do they, they're an important part of this project and 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 couldn't do this without them. This project also is made possible by the financial support of the Legacy Gift Fund of New England Yearly Meeting. The Obadiah Brown Benevolent Fund. And from a grant from Salem Quarterly Meeting. So thanks to all of them and also to Blue Dot Sessions for the music and also this week uh, some music from John Watts. Really grateful to the folks who make music available for using podcasts especially when it's so good thanks folks you can listen to this uh, podcast on itunes or google play you can also check it out on the web page for this show which is ocacshow.org on facebook you can search for on caring concern and you'll find it there yeah and on facebook you can leave us some feedback let us know how this show is working for you and uh same thing on twitter ocac show at again let us know if there are um things that are you're using this for um or and things you find useful about it whether you're doing it in personal reflection and listening or in a group and um, even if it's now 2020 um, we'd love to hear from you thanks so for listening let us know drop us a comment on the show's website ocacshow.org and we'll talk to you soon
Bye-bye. Thanks for listening.